Welcome to the Innovation of Work podcast. I could not be more excited about our guest today, Jeff DeGraff. He is, I think, probably the perfect guest for this podcast. Just a brief summary about Jeff, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into a really great discussion. He's both an advisor to Fortune 500 companies. He's a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He's advised many uh, companies over the years, and he's also an author. And also, he is dubbed the Dean of Innovation, which I can't wait to talk about a little bit more. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for having me on, Robin. Well, let's jump right in. I really want to get into kind of your origin story. You've been working on creativity and innovation for many, many years. Looks like way back into college is really when you got into it. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you got into this field and maybe more importantly, how did you get dubbed the Dean of Innovation? <laughs> well, the origin story is almost unbelievable. I was a terrible high school student. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I got to college as an athlete and I stayed in college as a teamster. I'm from a blue collar neighborhood. Yeah. And um, through just a whole series of stuff, I went through college very quickly. Um, all the way through my PhD because I couldn't, I don't, I couldn't think the way most people do. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure I'm ADD and I'm dyslexic and all the things. So you have to figure out your own way of uh, doing things. And I'm kind of a, a builder person. So I make, I understand things by building them. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I was 25, I came to Ann Arbor to work in the medical school as a professor, as a very young professor. And I had, I had all these awards and I got here and I said, I don't really like this very much. And so I met a guy in a hippie bar who worked for a guy who had a $20 million pizza company. And five years and billions of dollars later, I sold Domino's Pizza to Bain Capital and Mitt Romney. So I learned about business by building one. That's People stopped mean. talking to me because I have a, I, my PhD is in the technical tech, uh, uh, technology area. Right. <laughs> and then Bob Quinn came to see me and he said, um, They'd written a, a long story. They'd been a study on all the stuff I built at Domino's. And that's where I got the name, the Dean of Innovation, because my job at Domino's was doing everything that the boss wanted me to do. So remember, he went from 20 million to yeah. a billionaire. So we bought the Detroit Tigers. So we had to build a television network. And he wanted to cover the Pope. So we had to build a, a mobile satellite network. And he wanted to have, you know, this is going back. Your, your listeners will think this is bizarre. He wanted to have, <laughs> people be able to talk to each other on PCs directly. So, oh, I, remember. so I, was, I was an advisor to Steve Jobs and what was called AIS, Applied Integrated Systems, before there's an internet. And, you know, that, that becomes, uh, AppleNet becomes Connect, which when it comes back becomes iTunes. So I just, by dumb luck, worked for this really interesting guy who sent me in all these things. So when I got to Michigan, they said, you want to teach MBAs? And I said, no, they're dull, drab, and awful. You can hear them think. You know, these were the guys we stole their lunch money, you know, at PepsiCo yeah. and stuff. And he said, that's why we need you here. And that was 31 years ago. That's amazing. So I built these innovation labs. I've had a lot of, uh, it's just dumb luck. I, Larry Page was a student and, you know, founder of Google. So you get lucky, yeah. you know. Um, you gotta be, but you got to be mindful. And uh, so I'm a good example of, you know, you, it's never too late. You, you know, you, you, you really can turn it around. You know, your mom and dad might tell you that. Well, it, it, it turned out okay for me. And uh, I, I cannot emphasize enough how 
how lucky I was to find great uh, mentors. Yeah. To just be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, yeah, it took a little work too. That's amazing. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I would say perhaps it dates us a little bit, bo uh, both a little bit, but I remember all of that and then some uh, about uh, you know, trying to get computers to talk together and pre-internet, uh, fun, fun times. And it's amazing to see what's kind of happened with, with innovation over the years, especially on the tech space. Curious though, what keeps you motivated and passionate about innovation. I, I've heard you speak before, and uh, we'll talk about your your new book here in, in a few. But what really drives you to stay, uh, you know, passionate for this area? Well, there's a there's a everybody has a mission, and my mission is the democratization of innovation. And I'm very American this way. Yeah, I have a, I've, I feel very concerned that America will lose its way if we don't have a sense of destiny. I think it's part of the culture I grew up in, the country I grew up in. And so um, the in a, books on creativity are, um, they're either very new agey, which is fine. And I, I like them, I don't have a, but they're not that, they're not very, uh, they're inspirational. They're not very uh, technical. And then a lot of them are kind of uh, very businessy and about how to make a zillion dollars. Yeah. And, you know, I've done okay in life, but I don't think that's not who I want to talk to. So what I did was because I'm the last student of the person who really created this field, Rudolf Arnheim. If you know, if your listeners don't know anything about the history of the field of creativity, it started at the University of Berlin in 1900 by a guy named Max Wertheimer. He has right. two famous students, Kurt Lewin, who creates organizational psychology, and Rudolf Arnheim, who creates what we would now call uh, what we now call design, design thinking or creativity studies. Yeah. And I'm the end of the line. So I, I buy his house when he has a stroke, et cetera. <laughs> but what I did, so since I'm early in the field, the, there's a person in front of me at Stanford named Mike Ray. He was in front of me. But there was, there was nobody in this field. This was like right. crazy stuff when I started. Sure. So I took a lot of the research, the stuff that I'm on, still on all these journals, right? Yeah. Grants and all that stuff that professors do. And I, and I made it simple. I made it pithy something that where in the neighborhood I'm from would understand. And then I right. took the six skills because I've been in over half the fortune 500 now at the senior level, the six skills that I think everybody at least should have half of them to right. succeed at a business. And I simplified them and said, I like these. So some you will have seen a lot of them you will not have seen, but the reason for doing this Robin was to say minimally, if you can think like this and you can master a few of these skills, you can make this work for you. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Well, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about that Fortune 500 experience. You have worked with the Who's Who, General Electric, Coca Cola, so on and so forth. Could you talk a little bit about maybe one or two of those transformational moments that really stand out for you, and what were the keys to those innovations that uh, that uh, really drove the change? Yeah, um, let me right off the bat. One comes to mind. Um, there's a venerable English um, news organization called Reuters. Yeah. And if you've been in downtown, I've been to Times Square, you see the Reuters building. I was part of that whole thing too. But Reuters was uh, on the verge of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Reuters had always been very, very English. They'd always done things in a very specific way. And I got called in by the chairman of the board, a wonderful man named Sir Christopher Hawk. I love this guy. And he said, um, I, you know, they brought me in. We need to change this. What are we going to do? 
Right. And so I said, you've got a legal counsel who's running uh, your, uh, your area in Brazil named Tom Glosser. I think you ought to be named the next CEO. And stunningly, he was. So I first, my, you know, so now I'm flying to London, you know, like weekly kind of thing. Right, you know? right. And I have a lot of these experiences in my career. <laughs> and um, so we finally say we've got to have a galvanizing moment. So we bring everybody from Reuters to their annual conference. The, not everybody, but, you know, the leaders and the mm -hmm. best and the brightest. Yeah, sure. And we create an extremely intense, disruptive jumpstart in an old truck warehouse, what's called a lorry warehouse, okay. in not, just outside of Notting Hill on Portobello Road. So we have these romantic notions, but actually <laughs> kind of the old kind of, you know, flea shop part of London. Right. And we brought everybody together and we said, we're going to completely remake this company from top to bottom. That means we're going to sell things. We're going to lay people off. We're going to hire people. This is going to be, this is going to be rough. Sure. Yeah. And in a two day period of time, we developed a strategy which had a lot of people buying in. The, a lot of people had planned to leave the company, kind of uh, bought in. So yeah. remember, Reuters is a news organization at the right. time. And you know, this is when Bloomberg's trying to get a foothold and stuff. It's how do we recreate this organization yeah. to be tech a company, to be a, a fountain for those companies? And it was, um, it was stunning because a number, basically they, the, the company was trading at something like $1.50 a share. Right. And most people, you know, and that happens, the best people uh, jump ship. Uh, they sure. bought, I think it was, I think, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think it was something like uh, $70 million worth of shares on the spot. Oh, wow. Yeah, insane amount. Um, and what happened was it took about two years to turn it, but something that never happens, Thompson got involved, the Canadian information yeah. company. And instead of Thompson, Overtaking Reuters, Thompson made the CEO of Reuters the CEO of Thompson Reuters. Yeah. Right? Because they could see that we saw the future of what was going to happen here. So those are the kind of things where normally, uh, Robin, the old assimilates the new. Yeah. But yeah. in these situations of real innovation, punctuated equilibrium, the new assimilates the old. And boy, we're seeing that now with COVID, aren't we? Oh my goodness, yes. Think about how our government in particular and our higher ed institutions, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, yep. have failed tragically on any, it doesn't matter what your political affiliations, any objective, any objective uh, measurement, we're, we're, we're comparable to India, Mexico and, and Brazil, which is not, you know, that's, we're the United States. Right. Um, but while that's going on, when this event has thrown our hierarchies, I want people to understand what's emerging. So all of a sudden, Harvard has all these startups and Moderna yeah. and, you know, uh, and Michigan and Pfizer and, you know, some VCs and 20 startups and FinTech and, yeah. you know, Stanford deals with Imperial and they've got a synthetic RNA and they're dealing with, you know, J&J uh, &J and, you know, Oxford and AstraZeneca. All of a sudden, we have 116 creativity clusters emerging organically. Now we're down to six and it's a foot race. Now it's real competition. This is very yeah. American. See, my blood's getting up here. Like, yeah, now it's, <laughs> now we're going to see who's, you know, who can best who here. Yeah. But the, the, the thing of it is drug discovery on a new vaccine, a radical vaccine, it's eight and a half years. Yeah. It's going to go, I think it's about around mid-September, not September, I think around mid-January, we're going to have something. And around the end of the summer, we'll be, every, I think the, the uh, CDC's right. End of the summer, we'll be kind of on board. 
But drug discovery is now taking about 20% of the time as it used to take. Yeah. And the FDA will never put this genie back in the bottle. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. You can't. Ever. Didn't, right? and how, are we ever going to get our prices again now that we're on Zoom all the time? So the notion is the new, what I want people to hear on your podcast. Yeah. Is this is one of the few moments in our t- history that the new will assimilate the old. It's an yeah. innovation moment. It, ha- it has to happen too. It's a, there's, there's forcing functions that are outside of our control that are causing this to happen. It turns out that necessity is indeed the mother <laughs> Absolutely. of invention. Absolutely. That's right, we have that old saw, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about a new book that you have just released, <laughs> The Creative Mindset. Uh, first of all, congratulations. You, are, uh, you. you have multiple books that you've published. Um, what was um, the spark to, to write this book? And um, I guess who, who needs this book? And how might those concepts in the book really help people to, to keep innovating? Yeah, I, I wrote this book for everybody. I didn't, I didn't want to write this book for, you know, I've written a lot of books for business leaders and, you know, there's a lot of books out there. My big thing was, what about the person who's trying to, uh, you know, just, just make their life better and new? What about the person who's got a side hustle? The person who's got a great recipe, she wants to see it in some restaurants in her town. What about the person who's trying to do something to their church group, trying to get their kid into a decent university? I call this creativizing, taking the ordinary and trying to make it extraordinary. And it's really my homage. My, <laughs> a, my mother and father are amazing people. I think half of life is just being born to the right people. You know what I mean? Just indeed, people who, indeed. Who get it. And yeah. we should be gr- grateful and take care of them, right? Yeah. But, but my, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I grew up in a hut house. And my mother and father could take a dime and just turn it into, we'd go to the Upper Peninsula and they would, a clutch would burn out and then it became a game about how to trade services and, you know, and how to get home. And the next thing you know, you're at, you're at home. And yeah. everybody, this was my, my parents. So this is, this, this is, this is me trying to reignite the democratization of innovation. This is me trying to say, you didn't have to go to a good university. You didn't have to be born to the right parents. Yeah. You can make something happen, but in order to do this, you have to do two things. One, you have to have a mindset for it. Yeah. Um, and that's important because like my, my mother and father, you know, you have to be able to see opportunity where no one else sees it. And then the second thing is um, you, you have to master at least a few skills, which incidentally, the, the neural net of your mind has bequeathed to you almost all these skills. You have to become mindful though right, of right. using them. So mindset and just a few skills. And if you can do that, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not a your dreams come true guy, <laughs> but, I, but I'm a you're moving forward guy. Gotcha. I'm a, you're going to get some momentum person. Yeah. And, and looking at the, the, the book and, and reading uh, a good portion of it, I mean, this is a workbook. This isn't just a casually read. I mean, you can get glean a lot from it, but this is really an opportunity to learn how to apply the concepts that you've outlined. Um, what could you, could you share a couple of tidbits on, you know, tips for how do you really get that creative mindset? Get, given the fact that we've got it all, how do we, how do we find it and use it? Yeah. I want to add to this though, before we start. Sure. There is a whole, if you go to my webpage, jeffdegraff.com, 
and you go to resources, there are worksheets for the book. There are 15 videos that show you how to do every step. There are slides for everything. So I've really pushed everything into the digital domain that I could and saying, you know, you don't have to spend another nickel. If you buy the book, everything you need to do this with your church or your, your school during, during COVID it's there. And I'm really, really big on teachers giving them something here. So I see the state of Maryland's adopted some of this. So I think we'll see this. So create a mindset. Yeah. Um, I, your brain naturally, uh, the neural nets basically make connections in very complicated ways. And creativity is just allowing your brain to do that. But in order for you to be creative, you have to do a couple things. You have to break your dominant logic or habit-bound thinking. You have to become aware of your thinking. So let yeah. me give you a start. Okay. When are, when are you creative? Robin, are you a morning creative person? An afternoon creative person or an evening creative person? When are you most creative? Oh, definitely evening. Okay, see, I'm married to an evening person. I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm an early morning person. Yeah. I'm a five, I'm a five a.m. Right, I drive her crazy. You know, roll out, <laughs> go downstairs, work on stuff. Are you creative when you're when it's quiet or when there's music on or people talking? Um, I both actually, but I really prefer music. Okay, good. Are you creative when you're relaxing like meditating or before you go to sleep or are you creative when you're working out or stimulated uh both probably more when i go to sleep i can't quite turn it off okay so here's the first thing it's not creativity on demand it's creativity when creativity demands it when are you creative so i want to tell you what a hypocrite i am a terrible okay. hypocrite <laughs> i write a lot of books i'm a two million mile guy on delta alone right oh delta airlines so i always say i'm gonna and i write a lot i write hundreds of articles and all that stuff. So I said, I'm always going to write on the airplane. Whenever I get in the airplane, I can never write. Yeah. But I always plan on writing on the airplane. What I do instead is I try for about half an hour and I do this all the time. It's like a ritual on how ridiculous I am. <laughs> and then what'll happen is I'll go to sleep. Yeah. So I get to sleep. And then when I go to the hotel, the next morning I'll get up at five before I work and I'll write. So I can write in hotels when it's quiet in the morning, but I can't write on airplanes. So if I were smarter, I'd say, you can't write on airplanes, Jeff. Stop trying to write on airplanes. Right, right. But that's what we all do. Yeah. We say, oh, I'm going to be open from two to three. I'm going to write the paper from two to three. Are you creative from two to three? No. Don't write the paper from two to three. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Other obvious things. <clears throat> I, I, I believe the sign of an elegant mind is to look for disconfirming feedback. Look for people who don't agree with you. Yeah. Who are smart. They're not here to argue with you because... Because innovation is the result of the creative power of constructive conflict. So right. I'm a believer that we're creative in an ecosystem with other people, right? right? Lennon and McCartney, you know, Charlie Munger oh, yeah. and uh, Warren Buffett, you know, you're often going to see opposites. And so, so one, surround your, number two, surround yourself with people who aren't like you, who have yeah. different super skills. Three, um, the other thing that I think is a sign of an elegant mind is look for incongruities. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time and a lot of my biggest breakthroughs that people have talked about have become from, I just look at things and then I ask myself, <clears throat> does this go with this? Is this where I'm likely to find this? Right. So, let me give you an example. I had a, a GSA, really bright young woman. She comes in and she's studying in a uh, scientific discipline and she's very, very bright. She went to uh, Smith College. She's a very bright person. Right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm watching how she talks and interacts and the things she does. And one day I said to her, you know, 
you just don't look like a, the ordinary kind of person who's in this field. And I said, I'm usually a pretty good judge of this. I, you, I'm seeing these things that you do, right? but that doesn't seem to fit. She got all flush. Uh -oh. I, she's got a little emotional and she said, well, something you don't know is when I was a undergraduate, I was admitted to the Juilliard school. And oh, she thought wow. she's from Asia. My parents didn't want me to be a, a performer. And I said, okay. So now, now the issue is, okay, I see who you are. It's not, I'm not judging and I'm not trying to be, right. violate anyone's space. I see who you are. Now, how do we take who you really are and help you get where you need to go, where you want to go? Is this gotcha. making sense? So you look for, that doesn't seem to go with that, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's a big, some, it's a long story. I won't bore you with it, but I was doing a project at the, uh, before the last election with the CIA, and I had some observations about what I thought was going to happen in a number of different areas. And they called me back and said, how did you know this? And I said, it didn't. What I saw were incongruities. Right. And, and then you start thinking for yourself for a moment, if right. this makes sense to you. So that's yeah. a creative mindset. Can you, can you get everybody out of your head? <clears throat> can you hear yourself think? Right. What, what do you think? Right. Which is scary, you know, and, and <laughs> sometimes, yes. Yeah. Well, for me, a lot of times I'm thinking, <laughs> wow, that, I hope that's not true. But, um, and then you, then you can get your bearing. So those are just three gotcha. examples off the top of my head about uh, the creative mindset, what you have to do, but just being aware. I love, I love that. I think, I think too. Yeah. I, I am totally with you. It is hard not to fight what you think you should be doing. Your, your example of trying to ride on the plane, uh, I try to write or read on the plane and I, I can't do that either. Uh, but just kind of accepting the way you are and the way you work, uh, that's, that's a wonderful tip. I, I, I that and really and you're, with me personally. Your gift and your limits. The other yes. part, people love to talk about their gifts. What about your limits? Yeah. So you have to bring people around you who are good at things you're not good at. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, and you know, that kind of ties to what we try to do in business where, you know, it makes total sense to build diverse teams who are complementary and who bring different perspectives. Um, kind of on that note, how do you apply kind of that creative mindset um, and kind of those tips that you gave when you're dealing with a larger team who isn't necessarily creative at 2 p.m. when you're having that brainstorming meeting? How do you how do you kind of foster creativity in that scenario? What are some tips? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I'm a big believer in uh, divide and conquer. <clears throat> I don't think large group, yeah, this is like uh, McChrystal books, his, his book about team, a team of teams. Right. That's right. the way I've run everything of, I just think once you get to a certain size, there's no, you're no longer uh, working in sync with each other. Yeah. So, Try to divide uh, tasks and challenges into smaller pieces. The other thing is in previous books, some of your, some of your listeners will know I'm one of the authors. Well, I'm the author of the innovation code and the uh, innovation genome, but right. it's based on the competing values framework, Quinn and Cameron, who brought me to Michigan. They're my mentors. Yeah. So I'm trying very much to make sure that in smaller teams, I create constructive conflict by making sure that I've got, um, a balance of perspectives, which doesn't mean the same number because some people are more demonstrative or stronger than other people or maybe, right. but I try and make sure that we can think around the problem. Mm -hmm. The other two things that I try and do is I'm a big believer in see one, do one, teach one. Okay. So do two, see one, do one, teach one. So the notion is when I've got a team, 
you want to try and model the behavior that you're trying to enlist. You right. know, you know, I call them the four F's. Okay. You know, what we know of the research one, fluency, you know, whoever said one idea is better than a hundred bad ideas, probably never invented anything. You know, a hundred bad ideas, way better than one good one. <laughs> Absolutely. And so you have to have, show them you have some bad ideas. Yeah. And off that will come good ones. Two, uh, the whole idea of, of flexibility, you know, that you took something from one area and you applied it to another. Steve Jobs' famous Stanford speech. I mean, so much of my career has been that. I'm like, <clears throat> how'd you think of that? Well, I saw it a couple of weeks ago over here and it <laughs> yeah. kind of worked for them. So, you know, bring, bring your poetry and, you know, and whatever you're watching on TV and the thing you're doing in the garage or the kitchen to work. Um, right, right. The next is, is freedom. Mm -hmm. This is a this is an old professor's trick, but it's a great one. And that is, um, if somebody has a stupid idea, just say that's a great idea. You should try it, <clears throat> because okay. what they'll figure out in the first chapter is it's not working. Yeah, and people will make adjustments. But if you say we can't do that or that's a bad idea, you're going to derail the whole thing. Sure, and remember, all learning, Robin, is developmental. If you don't believe that, take out a piece of paper and draw a picture of your dog. And yeah. everyone can tell you at what age you stopped learning to draw. <laughs> Play an instrument, speak a foreign language. It doesn't matter whether you're eight or 80, you're going through the failure cycle. That's yeah. how we learn. All yeah. learning is developmental. No, and finally, okay. flow. Okay. Know when you're creative, who you're creative with. And remember, you don't get a lot of flow states. We're creative. It depends on whose research you're reading. Yeah you know, two to three times a day, you know, when it rains, are you prepared, you know, for when it rains, I carry with me a little, I'm an old guy, a little pocket thing, <laughs> you know, oh, this is, oh, it's happening. It's happening. You know, right. you kind of rush around quiet. I'm not talking to you. It's happening, <laughs> you know, um, and that, that sort of holds you over. So just those four things, I think right off the bat, really just really help you with a, a group and a group that gets stuck. And just remember also, here I'm, and I'm rambling on. Which no, is you're awesome. This is great. So just remember, in this age of Zoom, you know, nobody can keep, can keep this kind of focus and concentration for three hours. Oh, absolutely not. You know, 30 minutes on, 20 minutes off, something like that. That's what yeah. I try and do. Yeah, yeah. One follow-up to that. That was fantastic, by the way. Um, when you think about how to spot innovation, you, you have a bit in the book about that? How do you spot that innovation, um, innovative opportunities? And then maybe the follow-up would be, you know, I, I'm CEO of a startup and, and this is what we do. We innovate every day yeah. um, and are continuing to look um, for those opportunities. W what are some thoughts that you have around uh, how do you spot those opportunities? How do you be yeah. open to that? I want to tell you about a conversation I had last week with a senior, with a, a senior person at a, one of our military services. Yeah. And they said, um, they, I, do, I, I do a lot of work with the military. They said, um, I've got this idea <clears throat> about how we're going to stop this thing from happening. I can't get into the details. Of this, but sure. I said, um, well, let me hear what it is. And they went to this whole thing. And I said, <clears throat> it's a great idea, <clears throat> but it's an idea I could have thought of driving in this morning and I guarantee your enemy has already thought of it. Yeah, said, okay. What, ha what happens after that? And there's this long pause. And I said, okay, let's do it another way. I'm gonna destroy your idea. That's what I'm gonna try and do. Okay. And what you're gonna do is try and defend it. 
and you're not, and you, you don't be defensive. And I'm going to destroy it. It took me about two minutes to completely destroy his idea. Right, right. And I said, now what are you? Now you're going to rebuild the idea, right? I call it deconstruct to reconstruct. You're going to rebuild the idea. So to me, I'm very big on a couple of things. I'm very big whenever you have a great idea to ask yourself what's the opposite of that idea or how to ruin the idea. Okay. Really challenge thing. yourself. Second thing, I. I'm a technologist by trade and I'm so not enamored with technology. I'm so not enamored. When somebody says, oh, I've got a technology that will do these three things. I'm like, so what? You know, um, tell me, because everybody has toys. Everybody's sure. developing the next toy. You know, <clears throat> that's, 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 uh, tell me how, let me put it another way, Robin. Whenever somebody tells about their innovation, I always ask them this question, whose problem does that solve? Right. And if you can't articulate to your mom and dad whose problem it solves, right? And then the issue is if it's obvious whose problem it solves, there's 10,000 other people doing it. Yeah. Without what it. happens after that? <clears throat> What's the special sauce? And if it's 87 things, it's 86 too many. Yeah. What's the one thing that it does that no one else can do that you need. I'll give you a great example. There are literally hundreds of COVID tests out right now. Okay. What's the one thing that we don't have? We don't have one that can spontaneously tell you if you've got it or not. That's the one thing. Nothing else counts. So somebody says, mine's 97% accurate. There's 93. How many days does it take? Oh, it takes, mine takes eight hours. I'm like, useless. Put, you know, that's the one thing. What's the one thing? So rather than trying to make it 97% effective, make it 89% effective and right. you spontaneously know because you can always give another test and in the 89%, you're going to figure that out one way or the other. That's yeah. a protocol. So these are really great things that I think entrepreneurs get wrong. And they, the other thing that entrepreneurs, I think, get wrong all the time is design thinking. God bless design thinking. <laughs> it's for a reason. Sure. But just because you design it doesn't mean you can, you're right. I think, I, here's what I always tell people <clears throat> making, you know, uh, uh, inventing something's hard. Yeah. Selling it's harder. Yeah. And moving the soft tissue of any large customer to actually adopt it is the hardest. Sure. So the notion is, um, yeah, you've got something interesting. Now see if you can manufacture, you know, this is the, this is going to be the issue in January. Yeah. You got a vaccine. Right. Now I have to make 7 billion, actually, because we're going to have two shots, 14 billion doses of it. And get it right? to people. And yes, I'm just going to say and deliver yeah. it and then make sure that people are really being cured. This Absolutely. Is, yeah. This is the reality of what we're talking about. So yes, design thinking necessary, but not sufficient entrepreneurs. Right. Right. Okay. All right. That's amazing. I've got two more things for you before we wrap. Um, you know, our... Our whole team, everything that we do is about digital transformation. And, you know, paper was invented, you know, back in the eighth century. Um, and there's so much wonderful technology. Steve Jobs was instrumental in that. Before Steve, IBM, it goes way back. We've had, we've had wonderful advances that really help, um, help things like get a COVID vaccine or help you be more productive. And for what we do, we help keep workers safe. Yep. Question to you is, what would you tell leaders in companies where, you know, kind of for that frontline worker or just for workers in general, they're still using paper forms and processes um, that maybe aren't effective and 
you can't get data out of it and you, you can't really innovate. What would you tell them um, about innovation? Yeah, I'd say a few things. Right off the bat, I'd say, um, number one, when you get into the digital domain, you're dealing with two different generations. So I tell my children when they use technology, I helped invent that. And they go, <laughs> yeah, but you don't use it. I'm like, yes, I'm a digital immigrant, right? <laughs> so the people who are making important decisions, I hate to say this, I'm a boomer, we have all the money, we're rich. Our poor sure. millennial children are poor. We've, you know, it's been terrible. <laughs> but, but they are the digital generation that, you, yeah. that you're not having a problem with. Yeah. Because, because they know how it, because being digital has a positive effect for them. Absolutely. Yeah. My generation has anxiety that, you know, you'll lose something or we'll right. lose track of it or is this secure? <clears throat> so all the risk. That's, that's not a technological thing. That's a, that's an emotive thing. Remember people make yeah. decisions, not based on, um, not based on logic. They make emotional decisions. Sure. People, yep. The number one reason people buy a car is the color it comes in, right? right? <laughs> um, <laughs> the second thing I would say is don't waste this crisis yeah. because this is digital's chance to showcase what it can do because yeah. now it has a real reason to have, it has a real value proposition. Absolutely. Or you had to sell it. Now yeah. people are experiencing it. So right. I'm using this so I don't get disease. I'm using this because I can't go to the bookstore. I'm right. using this because uh, I don't want to look in the mail that, you know, the, that post person looks a little iffy. Um, <laughs> yeah. right? So that'd be the second thing. And then the, the final thing, which I think is, um, is important. I want to tell you a story if okay. I can do this quickly. Yeah. So um, when I was a young man, I worked on something called Project Zeno and I worked on it with Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it was to try and create literacy in the uh, Los Angeles school district. Okay. And we did it by developing these, remember the old big CDs? Oh yeah. The huge ones, so oh, the, yeah. the disc, the laser disc. Yep. <clears throat> we're teaching people how to drive a truck. So getting a class S truck driver, uh, we were going to teach people how to be literate because Hudson Institute said that something like a third of all graduates in the Los Angeles school district were functionally illiterate. So yeah. it's, like, it's like giving people uh, laptops and iPads today. Right, so we gave right. this and we said, they're going to learn to read by learning to be a truck driver. And it turned out we didnn't make any difference at all. Oh. And then 1990, I got a call from the editor of Life magazine. And something really weird happened. She said, I want to talk to you about innovation. So I felt really good, Robin. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a new professor. She said, I want to talk about your, your great uncle, Robert Graff. Now, my father and his father didn't get along. I didn't know anything about my father's family. Nothing. It was a big okay. blank. It's like, turns out my great uncle was the man who invented paperback books. He created this company called Pocket. Oh, wow. <laughs> right, which we now know as Penguin, right? That's awesome. Well, when I read his biography, he created it because he thought if people could buy a book for a quarter in the train station, they'd become literate. Now, here's the more I'm trying to give uh, you, you and, and uh, all your colleagues. And the same, he, I made the same mistake he made of saying a better technology is going to get somebody what they need. Right. But, but that wasn't the problem you've misidentified the problem. Right. The problem for the person in Los Angeles was even if they passed and learned to read, they weren't going to get a truck driving job. There were no truck driving jobs. Ah. The problem of the person in the train station was they were a day laborer. Reading wasn't going to help them do anything. Right. So I need the people work for you to be the day laborer, the person in the school district. I need them to think deeply 
right. about what the problem really is. Right. 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 And that's what digital is going to solve. So stop talking about the digital part and start talking about what the more endemic issue is as to why right why they're not adopting this no that's outstanding yeah i violently agree with that that's that's wonderful guidance all right last question so i am sure you must have a vision or a wish list of what kind of innovation you would like to see happen in your lifetime aside from a covid vaccine that truly works and gets distributed what what would you love to see i'd love to see a social form of innovation okay and i'd like to see two things happen um, I think we went to the moon, we licked the commies and we built the net. That's my generation. Yeah. We ruined the environment and we've created enormous social inequities. I'd like to see the democratization of innovation. I'd like to see it become compulsory that mm -hmm. we create, you know, uh, daycare opportunities for people to go and work in a lab somewhere, places right. where the academy industry and the military meet together, uh, places where there's a limit, limited amount of seed funding for young people who are trying to get a start in this thing. Right. I'd like us to, it's, it's my version of plant 10,000 trees. Yeah. I'd like us to plant 10,000 trees and then the two space launches for these young people. One, let's shrink the gap. There shouldn't be, if in America, nobody should be hungry or, you know, on the outside. Right. It's America. We, that's our, we, we should not have that happen. And then two, fix the environment. And it's not, stop living in small houses, unless you want to. Let's work on cars that get, and get and incidentally, this is entirely possible today, they get 300 miles to the gallon. And yeah. let's work on alternative ways of, and let's fix the planet so yeah. that our children get what they need and our grandchildren get what they need. Let's get back to what I think America is all about, in my opinion, which is let's make this better and new and let's have a sense of, of destiny and ownership that it's our responsibility to do yeah. it. Oh, that's great. And I think it all comes back to being creative and being open to those ideas so those things can flow and happen. So everyone needs to go buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> and go to the website to get all the free tools. Don't make sure you get the free tools because that's that will help you do what you want to do. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today. Sincerely appreciate it. Fantastic conversation. I'm sure you and I could talk all day. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for having me on.